0: Well, thank you very much. It's a great uh, delight to be back here again at Grace Baptist Church. And uh, yes, uh, I've been so grateful to get to know Bill years ago when he was down in Orlando and uh, then to continue that friendship here in Somerset and be with you here. It's a a great pleasure. Uh, Thank you for having me here these days uh, for our series on apologetics well, it's an area that I have, uh, you know, studied and taught over the years, and I, I have come to see that apologetics is just as important for Christians as it is for Christians' witness in the world. That is, it has it has a tremendous relevancy and importance for the lives of believers to, to come to a greater sense of confidence that what they believe, they know why they should believe it. And uh, so, really, I, I think this... Uh, Conference is a great thing for a church to do, not only to prepare you for questions that may come up uh, as you share your faith and talk with uh, people in your neighborhood or at work and the like, but also just for your own souls, for my own soul. I mean, this study of apologetics is one that uh, can just deepen us in our faith and give us greater confidence that what we hold as true really is true and really is important. Um, it's, it's an area that I trust will be edifying to every one of us as we go through these different truths together. You should have the handout in front of you that says, does it matter what we believe and why? Biblical basis for apologetics. That's what we'll be looking at uh, first thing this morning. And uh, at the top there, I give a definition of apologetics. It's a very simple definition, but I think really it captures the the heart of what apologetics is. Uh, Apologetics is the reasoned advocacy of the Christian faith. The reasoned advocacy of the Christian faith. So advocacy, I, I like that term better than defense, simply because it has the notion of you ha, you believe this. This is something that you are committed to, that your convictions are along these lines. You're an advocate of it. You can defend something that you may or may not be committed to, but th- this is a, an advocacy in, indicates a, a subjective and, and a personal commitment to truth And now you give a reasoned defense or reasoned advocacy of that aspect of the Christian faith. And this is what we'll be involved in in these uh, sessions together. Uh, You know, my my main uh, teaching responsibility at Southern Seminary is in systematic theology, not in apologetics, although I've taught apologetics for 30 years now, uh, on and off, uh, for for a number of of, uh, years in a number of different institutions. Uh, But the difference between the two is this, that systematic theology primarily deals with the what of the Christian faith. What is it that we believe? That's really summarized in creeds. We believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, and so on. These things that we believe constitute the what of the Christian faith, what it is that we believe and hold dear. But apologetics really focuses on the why question. Why do we believe these things that we believe? Yes, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Why do we believe that it is the Word of God? We believe that Christ rose from the dead. Why do we believe that? What basis is there for that belief? And so on. So we're going to focus in this series together on the why question, on not everything. Goodness, there are many more things that we could talk about in apologetics, but some of the key areas that are under a special, uh, uh, under, under, uh, special attack uh, fr- from the culture in which we live. And you may know th- what we're going to be looking at in the sessions that follow, but let me just help you see that. Uh, after this one, in the worship service that follows, we're going to be looking at the exclusivity of Christ in light of a pluralistic world that we live in today that would want us to believe that every religion is equally valid, equally legitimate. And so, can we believe that Jesus Christ is the only Savior? That is a very important question for us in this uh, this culture in which we live. And then tonight, we'll be looking at sort of a a complementary question to that, not not about Jesus Christ himself, but is the gospel something that people must hear and believe in order to be saved? So the exclusivity of Christ in our morning worship service this morning, and then the exclusivity of the gospel uh, in our service tonight at 6 o'clock. Then on Monday night, we'll look at evidence for the resurrection of Christ, that Christ did rise from the dead and the implications of that for us theologically. And then on Wednesday night, the problem of evil. That uh, is, is one of the most vexing issues that Christian people face through all of history, including today, and that is how, how can we believe that God is both good and powerful, the God of the Bible that we know Him to be, if in fact there is evil in this world that He has made? How, how, how do we justify this? And it's a very important issue. So those are the issues we'll be looking at, and this, this one now is really to give us a background to why we do apologetics, what, what the, the importance of it is. Well, let's start with the context for apologetics. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, 3, verses 15 and 16, and we have here some words from Peter that are both wise and very helpful in terms of understanding the nature of apologetics, this reasoned advocacy of the Christian faith. 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, let me read this for you, and uh, this is from the New American Standard translation of the Bible. Peter writes this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Well, let me pick out three things from this passage that help us see the context for apologetics. First of all is the content of apologetics. The content of it is seen in the phrase in verse 15 where he says that we are to give a defense of the hope that is within us, the hope that is within us, which was a a summary way of saying those things that we believe that we believe are true, that base the, the very hope we have uh, of, of eternal life through Christ and, and the joy we have, the anticipation we have of sins forgiven and life forever lived with our creator God, this hope that we have within us. And by the way, this is written in, in the context of a persecuted people. So they're being, they're being persecuted for their faith, and yet these are people who exhibit hope despite the fact that very difficult times are, are, are coming upon them and they are, they're facing suffering and affliction because of that faith. And rather than moving away from that faith, they are embracing that as their greatest hope. The very thing for which they are persecuted is the thing that provides for them hope. That is the confidence of the truth that they have affirmed. So. Apologetics, then, is this defense or this advocacy of why you have this hope within you, why you believe in Christ despite, despite the fact that people in your culture uh, chide you and mock you, uh, ridicule you for this faith in Christ as the only Savior, why you would believe in the gospel when it is an offense to so many people. But in fact, it is that truth that is the hope for us, and we give a defense of that uh, of that hope, so the content of apologetics really then is giving a defense of those elements of our faith that provide for us the basis for our hope in in, uh, in what God has done for us in Christ. Secondly, the commitment of apologetics is seen in the opening phrase where he says, "Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, in other words, set him apart, set Christ apart as Lord." in your hearts. You do not submit to any other lordship in an ultimate way only to Christ. Christ is your ultimate and only final Lord. So you set Him apart, which means you fear Christ more than you fear men. Do you feel the weight of that? My goodness, I mean, I, I think of this even with the the simplest things in life, like bowing your head to pray at a public restaurant i mean i, I sometimes have felt may, maybe it would be better if we didn 't do that to, to you know to put put on display uh, our our uh, uh, thanksgiving to, to God in Christ for what he is providing here. But the, immediately I think, oh no, why not? Goodness, the most important thing that those people can know is we have set Christ apart as Lord and we acknowledge these are gifts from his hands. We bow and give thanks to God as as we should. And in so many ways, really living life under the Lordship of Christ means that you follow him and his ways and you do not fear what other people think or say ultimately. You fear what he says and thinks ultimately. So setting apart Christ as Lord means everything we do in life is framed by our submission to his leadership, our following where he wants us to go. And that may include times where we have to give a defense of the hope that is within us Uh, in in order to be faithful to Him and and tell those who object to our faith why it is we hold those things. So the commitment really of apologetics is a commitment to Christ, setting Him apart as Lord, and therefore we want to defend those truths which we believe ground our confidence in Christ and what He has done. And then finally, the character of the apologist is seen also in verses 15 and 16. At the end of verse 15, he says, "...to give an account of the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence, or fear, and keeping a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame." So here here are some elements that should describe The Christian who is the apologist, the Christian who is giving a defense of the hope that is within them, they are to do so, according to Peter, with gentleness and reverence. Now, here's how I interpret that. Gentleness is a quality that is exhibited toward the objector, toward the one to whom you are giving the defense. You approach them with gentleness, not harshness, not rudeness. This is not with a, with a, a baseball bat, you know, swinging uh, at them. Uh, tr- truth is not to, to bludgeon them. Truth is to penetrate their hearts. And truth and grace always travel together. Do you know that, tr- do you know that, uh, uh, that aspect of, of our faith? Truth and grace travel together. Goodness, we should be like Christ, should we not? And how is he described in John 1, 14? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth." So, the truth that we present needs to be presented in a way in which the, the love of Christ is manifest. You're deep concern for the welfare of the person, not just winning an argument, although you hope you win, don't you? Because if you don't, that means the other person is rejecting what you're saying and, and therefore rejecting truth, uh, uh, which alone can bring them freedom and forgiveness and salvation. So, indeed, you are concerned and do endeavor by God's grace to persuade, and yet you do so with a winsomeness, a graciousness, a kindness, and a charity toward the other person. So gentleness, I believe, is directed toward the other person, but reverence is directed toward God who has given this truth. So I think that the gentleness and reverence has in mind both a horizontal gentleness and a vertical reverence dimension. We do this realizing we stand under God as we say what we do or fail to say what we have failed to say. We do so under God realizing He's the one ultimately who will hold us accountable for our faithfulness to to defend the faith when we are called upon to do so. And then notice also in verse 16, to keep a good conscience in the thing in which you are slandered. So that... They, they cannot rightly look at your life and accuse you rightly of wrongdoing because you have lived a life of integrity. Your life matches your words. This is essentially what Peter is getting at in verse 16. Your life matches your words. So they, they may not like your words, and hence they may make up things about your life, but they, what they cannot find is any truth That would indicate that you live in a way that violates the the commitments and the teachings and the truths that you are presenting to them in your defense of the faith. So indeed, uh, integrity and authenticity of character is also part of the character of the apologist that Peter calls all of us to. So here's a beautiful summary statement, I think, in the New Testament of uh, the, the very nature of apologetics, the context in which it is to take place. The content of that apologetics, that hope that we have in Christ and those truths of the Christian faith that ground our hope in Christ. The commitment of the apologists, we always stand under the lordship of Christ. That is the supreme allegiance that we have. Nothing trumps that allegiance. His lordship over us is absolute, uh, unlike any other allegiance that we have. And then finally, the character of the apologist, gentleness toward others, reverence toward God, and then conducting ourselves in good conscience so that we have integrity as we speak. Our lives back up our words. All right, well, let's move next now to an apology for apologetics, apologizing for apologetics. You know, the word apologetics really is a word that indicates a defense of something, an explanation that would defend the truth of something. It's uh, unfortunate, I think, that in the English language that that Greek word, apologia, has come to us with with the connotations that are associated with to apologize, right? Right? When we think of an apology, then we're actually trying to give an explanation for uh, why something happened that wasn't good. We apologize for having wronged someone or having done something that that was uh, inappropriate. That's how we normally use the word apology. But in the Greek language, apologetics, to apologize, uh, to do apologetics was to defend, was to give a reasoned advocacy of what you believe. And so here is a little apologetic for apologetics. Why, from the Bible, is this an important thing to do? And uh, and my short answer for this is this, and we'll take a look at a number of passages, is that God really does intend His people to believe what there is good reason to believe. God really does intend His people to believe what there is good reason to believe. He doesn't want us to be duped. He, d- he doesn't want us to believe things that are incre- incredible, that, that we're really incredulous about, right? That, that we, we believe them even though there, there are no reasons for believing them, and yet we just believe them anyway. I mean, that may be belief in Santa Claus, but that's not belief in God. That's not belief in Christ. That's not belief in the resurrection. That's not belief in the the exclusivity of Christ. No, the the truths that God gives us to believe upon which our hope is based are beliefs for which there is good reason. And I I just want you to see from the Bible that in fact this is the way God has approached His people from the beginning. That He has always worked with them in a way in which he provides sufficient, now that word is important, sufficient evidence, sufficient truth that provides the basis for their believing. Now, what, what God typically does not do is provide the kind of evidence that is so overwhelming that only an absolute idiot would, would, would dispute it. And, and so, I mean, we'll see this as we work through this, that the, the evidence that he gives is sufficient when combined with the work of the Spirit, to bring someone to see, oh, indeed, this is true. Look at the evidence that is here for it that other people discount. But it is sufficient when seen through the eyes of faith, when seen through the work of the Spirit in our, in our minds and hearts to help us see things the way they are, it is sufficient to believe. Let's take a look at a few examples Uh, of the fact that God expects his people to believe what there is good reason to believe. The first one is in Exodus chapter four. Exodus chapter four. You might remember that God uh, uh, appeared to Moses in a burning bush in Exodus chapter three. This is one of the most marvelous uh, stories in the Bible where Moses sees the bush burning and he steps aside and, and sure enough, this is God speaking to him in this bush and this is where God calls then Moses uh, to be the one who would be the spokesperson, God's spokesperson, to Pharaoh to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, so you all remember that story. And uh, after God has told Moses something he didn't want to hear, namely, Moses, you're the man, I, I, I will speak my word through you, and Moses, frankly, didn't want the honor of being God's spokesman, he, he, did, he didn't feel like he had the gifting to do this. But in any case, God said, Moses, you're the one who will bring my people out of Egypt. I've appointed you to do this. And, uh, and Moses was worried about this. Will the people believe me when I go back? I mean, he had already asked God in chapter 3, when I return and tell them that, that God has sent me here uh, to, to lead you out of Egypt, uh, who shall I say sent me? And God told him, tell, tell them, I am the name Yahweh. Uh, the, The covenant name of God given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, he is the one who has sent you to lead the people out of Egypt. Okay, so that's all in the background, but now Moses is worried that the people still won't believe him. And notice God's response is not, well, shame on those people if they don't believe the word that you speak to them. They, they, they should just believe because you tell them, or they should just believe because you say that I tell them. No, God does not do that. He rather says this. Look at chapter 4 at verse 1. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it it became a serpent. And Moses fled from the serpent. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Now look at this that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Do you get the point? God is saying, let me give you some empirical, some visual verification that I have spoken to you by this miracle that you will perform in their midst. The miracle will verify the truth of what you are saying, that God has come to me, he's spoken to me, he sent me to bring you out of Egypt. How do you know that the Lord has spoken to me? Watch this, throw down the staff, it becomes a serpent, and so on. And it's not as though... God God is wanting to give just one little thing and that's it. Look, keep reading. Verse 6, the Lord furthermore said to him, now put forth your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous. And he said, put your hand back. And so he put his hand back and when he took it out, behold, it was like the rest of his flesh. And look at verse 8, if they will not believe you, or heed your witness because of the first sign, they may believe the witness because of the second sign. And then he gives him a third. So here is a first, a second, and a third miracle that Moses is to perform so that the people will believe. Believe that in fact God has said to Moses that you will be the one through whom I will deliver the people of Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh and bring them out of Egypt. So God gives reason to believe. Now, is this reason that could be rejected? Of course it is. You you could use your imagination and begin speculating some kind of uh, of magician uh, uh, work or or the like, some kind of magic that went on by which this happened. So it's not the kind of evidence that is so in your face that it would really be impossible to reject it, but wouldn't you agree with me that it's evidence that is sufficient, And God intends it that way to be sufficient to lead these people to believe, in fact, God has spoken through Moses. So, sufficient reason, sufficient evidence to believe what God calls us to believe. Or, here's another example turn to Mark chapter 2 in the New Testament. Mark chapter 2, another very familiar story to most of us, anyway, who have been in the church over the years where a group of friends have brought a, uh, a, a lame man to Jesus, a paralytic man, uh, to be healed, but they can't get him in the house. And so what they do is they cut an opening in the roof, pro- probably a, a thatched roof or a roof, a roof of grass of some kind. They cut an opening in the roof and drop the paralytic man down in front of Jesus. Let's pick up with the story uh, from at verse 4. Being unable to, uh, to get to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the, Pharisees, some of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, they said, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming, for who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, at this point, the story could go one of two ways. It could go that Jesus looks at those scribes, those teachers who are disbelieving, and simply says to them, you need to believe because I declare it. I, I declare it, and they're, they're, you are accountable to believe what I declare, and that's it. So in other words, I don't need to give any reason For believing that I'm able to forgive sins, you're obligated to believe it without any reason. It could go that way, but it doesn't. Notice how it does go. Pick up now at verse 8. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, he said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So look, look again what Jesus in this case does. He gives evidence that what he has claimed previously, namely, I have authority to forgive sins, your sins are forgiven. What basis does he have that authority? Well, he has that authority because he is from God, he is God himself in human flesh sent by the Father, he has divine authority to forgive sins. That divine authority though is testified to by the miracle. So which is easier? I mean, both of them are supernatural, aren't they? We, we can't do either one of them on our own, namely forgive sins or take up your pallet and, and go home to he- heal the paralytic. So Jesus gives the empirical evidence, the visual uh, uh, evidence that, that takes place in time and space, gives, gives that uh, evidence before them in order for them to believe his claim that he has the authority to forgive sin. Next, next one, turn, turn with me to John chapter 10. This picks up the very same theme with Jesus, but now broadens it to a bit broader perspective. John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Now, let me just make a comment here before we look at these verses. In John's gospel, you're aware of the fact of how often the, the concept of signs Or miracles that Jesus performed play in John's gospel. Uh, Turning the water into wine at the wedding at at Cana of Galilee was the first sign that Jesus performed. So there are these miracles that Jesus does walking on the water, feeding the 5,000, these these various miracles that Jesus does. And uh, it's very interesting. If you look in John's gospel for why he does these, it's connected to belief. Now, look with me. At verses thirty-eight and thirty, sorry, thirty-seven and thirty-eight of John ten. Uh, well, let, let me read a little bit earlier than that, so you can see the context of this. Uh, at verse thirty-four, Jesus has said, "Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods, that is these ju- human judges." That because they're in a godlike position judging, they were called gods. If you called them gods, these mere humans to whom the word of God came and the Scripture cannot be bro- broken, do you say of Him, uh, Jesus Himself, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, that you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. Okay, verse thirty-seven. If you do not believe the work, the wor- if you do not. I'm sorry, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, namely the works of my Father, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So here John makes clear, that is the gospel writer makes clear through the words of Jesus, that the miracles that he has been performing are meant to verify to authenticate, to to bear witness to the truth of what he has proclaimed with his words. If you don't believe the words that I say, believe on account of the works that I do. They testify about me. And something similar, you can look back at at, uh, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. That's a fascinating statement, indicating that though the miracles are there, it is sufficient to, 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 to authenticate his identity as the, as the Messiah and the Son of God. It is sufficient, but because they have hardened hearts and they have not been drawn by the Spirit, we'll talk more of this in a moment, because that hasn't happened, they, they find reason to reject it. They find reason to reject it even though there is, in fact, sufficient evidence. And and, and hence, they are held accountable for for their rejection of that evidence, even though their own minds and hearts are are incapable of processing it rightly. It is still there, and they are accountable to it. Uh, Look at another passage with me, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, but I think for the sake of time, I'll just focus on a couple uh, verses out of this early account in the book of Acts. Let's read the opening three verses, Acts 1 verses 1 to 3. The first account I composed, Theophilus, that's referring back to the book of Luke that uh, this that that Luke wrote, now he's writing the book of Acts, the first account, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, that is his apostles, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Then also look at verse 11, verse 11 of Acts chapter 1. They also, they, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from, from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now what you have in both of these passages in, in verse 3 and verse 11 is that God has chosen it good and right to give evidence to His people, in this case His disciples, the disciples of Jesus, evidence so, they, so that they will believe what they should believe. They need to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Boy, this, everything hinges on this. I mean, when you look at the apostolic preaching in the New Testament, not only does it mention regularly the death of Christ... It also mentions regularly the resurrection of Christ who died for our sins. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. So they have to know that Christ not only died, but he rose again in order to proclaim the gospel rightly. This is a a matter of the utmost importance for them to believe the resurrection. So rather than just a voice coming from heaven saying, my son has been raised from the dead and they never see Jesus. They just take the the statement uh, that came from heaven, my son has been raised from the dead and that's it. Rather than doing it that way, what did God do? He gave to his disciples many signs and proofs of Jesus' resurrection, the appearances of Christ. We'll talk much more about this on Monday night when we look at the, the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. But the appearances of Christ were given so that these disciples would believe. Even Thomas, do you remember this? In John chapter 20, we won't take time to turn there. Do you remember Thomas, doubting Thomas, as he is sometimes called because of this one incident in particular, who didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, even though his own disciples, his fellow disciples, were telling him that they had seen Jesus. And Thomas said, unless I see with my own eyes that the the, the, the pierced side and the nail prints on his hands, I will not believe. So rather than chastising Thomas for that, what did Jesus do? Days later, he appeared in the room where Thomas was with the other disciples, and he said, Thomas, look, come, touch my hands, my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Based on what? Proofs, evidence, uh, attestation to the fact that he had risen from the dead. And so here, here, is, here is what God ordained as good and right was to give to those early witnesses of the gospel uh, their, their eyewitness account of the fact that they had seen Jesus who had been raised from the dead. Again, God gives uh, evidence and, and uh, reason to believe what he calls them to believe. Next passage, Romans 1, 18 to 23. And again, we're not gonna read all this, but we'll just see how this begins. Romans 1, beginning at verse 18, is very sobering. It's one of the most sobering passages anywhere in the Bible that describes a people who have turned away from God and 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 what God gives them over to. I mean in many ways, you read through Romans 1 18 to the end of the chapter and you realize this is happening in our country right now. At least it appears that uh, this very God giving them over to to the greater immorality and so on, marks the age in which we live very much. But notice at verse 18, Paul writes this, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness." You see that point? They're accountable, according to Paul, because they suppress truth. In other words, truth is given, evidence is given, Proofs, as it were, are given sufficient to enable them to see the truth and respond rightly, but they reject it, they suppress it. Well, you might ask, what truth is that? Keep reading. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. When did he do that? When did God make evident truth that they have suppressed by which now his wrath comes upon them? When did this happen? Next verse, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Well, there we have our answer. Where, where did God make known his, Himself uh, to, to them, uh, that the truth which they've suppressed, by which they have invited uh, the wrath of God to come upon them? Answer? The truth of God revealed in creation. So, indeed, God gives sufficient evidence in the created order of His divinity, of His divine power, His divine nature manifest in creation. Now, can the evidence of God in creation be rejected by people? Oh, yes. Is it rejected by people in our day? Oh, my, yes. I mean, the, the, I, I was just uh, on a walk yesterday with my dear wife uh, and uh, just going through the neighborhood, look, looking at uh, some of the trees changing color and, and just so many evidences of the, the handprint of the Lord and commented to, jo- to, to my wife, Jody again, as we've talked about this many, many times, the sheer idiocy of people who hold that, that biological life on planet Earth Is a matter of chance processes without any kind of intelligent design that stands behind it. I mean, it's just lunacy. And yet, the PhDs of the PhDs of our culture hold that view. I mean, it's just incredible. There is sufficient evidence, and they are held accountable. (laughs) They are without excuse. The wrath of God is upon them. They are accountable. And, and yet, it is not the kind of evidence that is so in your face that it is impossible to come up with some other explanation. They do come up with another explanation, uh, even though that other explanation is pathetic. Nonetheless, they do. So here we have it, uh, the, the evidence of God given so we will believe in who he is. Finally, 1 Corinthians 15. And again, we're going to come back to this passage on Monday night, so I don't have to spend much time here, but just to point out how, how clear it is that uh, God wanted empirical evidence for the Christian faith to be known to His uh, disciples, to His people. So, at verse 3, let's pick up there, at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, "...I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received." that Christ died for our sins. Now, notice what happens after he makes that statement. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. By that, I take it he means you can look back at the Bible and see from the Old Testament that it was declared that the Messiah who would come would die for the sins of the people. How about Isaiah 53? Pretty clear, right? Okay, At least in retrospect, it's clear. So, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and he was buried. Why does he include that phrase? You only bury dead people, right? So, there is an empirical evidence that he died because they buried him. Roman guards judged he was dead. They put the spear in his side, in part, to determine the fact that he was already dead. So, Biblical evidence and historical evidence. He, he, he was buried. And here's the second part of the gospel. And he was raised on the third day. I'm at verse four. He was raised on the third day. Notice the pattern. According to the scriptures. Ah, so same pattern again. So don't we know from the Old Testament that the promised Messiah who would die for our sins would not be held in the grave? Psalm 1610, for example. That is quoted by Peter in Acts 2. Yes, indeed, the scriptures declare he would be raised. But then he says this. He, he was uh, raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared. So you have both biblical support and empirical support for the fact that Jesus died, and was raised." And then he elaborates on the appearances of Christ, because that's what he's pointing to here in this chapter, to give demonstration that Christ rose from the dead, and here, look at all the people to whom he appeared, the different groups, different settings, uh, different numbers of people that he appeared to as alive from the dead. Indeed, God gives sufficient evidence. He wants us to believe what there is good reason to believe. And here we have evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And we believe it not just because it's declared. Yes, it is declared. But there is evidence along with that to to ground and found our faith. Okay, finally, let's look real quickly at four possible objections and answers to these objections. The first one comes from some phrases from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 where he says he does not use persuasive words of wisdom. Look back, for for example, to chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And some have taken that to mean that you shouldn't use argumentation. You shouldn't attempt to persuade people to, to believe the gospel. But if that's what Paul meant... He himself violated his own teaching. Why? How do we know that? Because he persuaded people in the marketplace and so on. Look, for example, just to give you one sample text, Acts 18. Acts chapter 18. Uh, I'll just read verse 4. Of course, the context leading up to it is more helpful. But just verse 4, we read this. He was reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Gentiles. So there you have it. He's using not manipulative, so this is what he has in mind in 1 Corinthians Chapters 1 and 2, manipulative ways of getting people to believe what they really are not inclined to believe otherwise, but you manipulate them into it. I mean, think of a crooked used car salesman. I mean, just to give you kind of a sample example of what that might look like, a crooked used car salesman is going to try to hide the defects of the car so you don't know what those problems are and deceive you into buying that car, manipulating things in order to get the right outcome. That is exactly what Paul says we do not do. But does he use truth in a persuasive way? Oh, yes, he does. And you can see that uh, throughout the book of Acts. Here's a second objection. People's objections to the the Christian faith uh, are... are, uh, The objection is this. that People's objections to the Christian faith are never valid... Uh, but they're always and only cover-ups. So we shouldn't take their objections seriously because these objections aren't really valid. They're just disguising the fact that they really don't want to submit to God. Well, you know, that probably is true that there is a moral issue that is deeply involved in this as well, but does that mean we don't take the objections that they raise seriously? And I think that's a big mistake not to do that. Just dismiss them and, and just say, you just don't, you don't, Uh, believe simply because you don't want to believe. It's just a matter of your heart. That may be true that it's a matter of their heart, but still their objections ought to be taken seriously. For an example of that, look at how Jesus responds. I won't read the passage to you. I'll I'll just remind you of it. In Matthew chapter 12, he has just performed a miracle. And uh, the, the Pharisees who observe the miracle take place had said of of Jesus in this miracle, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So that's how they dismissed the miracle of Christ, of healing this boy and casting out the demon. He does this by the power of Satan. Well, rather than Jesus just merely uh, chastising them for, for making that claim, he gives them actually three reasons for seeing that their objection is invalid. Three reasons are given. I guess we should look at that real quickly. Look at Matthew 12, just so you can see these yourself. So he casts out demons by Beelzebul. That's in verse 24. Now verse 25, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, any kingdom divided itself is, is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? There's reason number one. You, you think I'm doing this in the power of Satan? Why would Satan do something that is destructive to Satan's own ends? Namely, casting out a demon. That makes no sense. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, verse 27 if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Of course, we don't know the background of that, but evidently they believe that some of their own sons were able to do this as well. Well, if I do it by Satan's power, what about them? So that's another reason for thinking their evaluation is mistaken. Then finally, verse 28, third reason. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So here's the third reason, namely, you know from the Old Testament that the promises of the coming Messiah would be of one who has the spirit upon him. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 61. Yes, he would have the spirit upon him to perform these miracles. So if I cast out these demons by the spirit, guess who I am that you're rejecting? The coming king of Israel. Indeed, so notice, I mean, the point I'm trying to make here is that rather than Jesus just lambasting them for this claim, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, he gives them three reasons to show that their objection is unfounded, ungrounded, in order to dismiss that objection. So, indeed, he takes those, those seriously. Final, final point. Oh, we have two more here, right? Because the, uh, because the Christian faith, number three, is a matter of faith, reason is neither necessary nor appropriate. And, of course, we've really been thinking about this objection all the way through. Uh, yes, the Christian faith is a matter of faith, but it's faith based upon truth that is given and evidence for that truth. One of the strongest single passages that declares that is John 20, verses 30 and 31 where John gives the purpose of his gospel. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these signs are given to attest to the truth of what he has said to the attest to the truth of his life as the Messiah. God gives sufficient reason for us to believe what he calls us to believe. Now here's the final point, I'm gonna to have to do this quicker than I would like, but, but please track with me if you can on this last point. Because the Christian faith can be supported with reason and evidence, people can be reasoned into the kingdom apart from any work of the spirit bringing them to faith. That's what some people have thought. We can reason people into the kingdom. And my friends, this is just plain false. Here, here's the problem. Is, is reason necessary for people to believe? Yes. But is it on its own able to bring them to believe? No, not apart from the work of the Spirit within their heart. So the Spirit must work in their heart in order to open their eyes to see the truth. Do you Remember, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That they may not see the light of the glory of the gospel of of Christ who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. They can't see it rightly. I think this is why we have so many macro evolutionists out there, you know? They cannot see the truth rightly apart from the work of the Spirit. The, The truth is sufficient and it holds them accountable, but apart from the Spirit opening their eyes to see the truth as truth, the truth as beautiful, the truth as right and good, they will reject it. So the Spirit must work in the hearts of people so that they can see the truth that is presented and embrace it as true and good and right and glorious. So it is neither neither the case that reason alone can bring people to faith or the Spirit alone working in them apart from truth given apart from that truth given the spirit can bring them to faith it's it's never one or the other it's always a combination of the truth being presented and presented with persuasion and answering objections and the spirit working to open their eyes to see that truth as it's presented and embrace it as true so indeed the spirit and truth go together the word and spirit go together And uh, both are involved in bringing us to faith. So apologetics then is this glorious task of bringing the truth to bear on people's minds and hearts. And yet we have to do so with a reliance upon the spirit to work within them. And so to do it prayerfully, not to do it arrogantly, not to do it with with a sense of of, uh, um, triumphalism or anything like that, but rather to present the truth humbly, remember with gentleness, uh, and, and, and to rely upon the Spirit then to bring them to saving faith. All right, let's close in prayer for, for our morning session. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to look through quickly uh, and, and briefly, and, and yet at some very important aspects, Lord, of uh, the nature of apologetics. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth that you have given that does give us the hope within by which we are confident, Lord, of our forgiveness of sins and life eternal with you through what you have done for us in Christ. Thank you for the truth given. Thank you for the spirit Uh, for all of us in this room who are believers in Christ. Your spirit has opened our eyes to see the truth for what it is and embrace it, and we give you uh, great thanks for that. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful before you, in, in being ready to give an answer to others for the hope that is within us. May we honor you in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.